welcome and thank you for listening in to the Successful While Parenting podcast. Till we figure out cloning, we'll be investigating tips, tricks, and routines that help other parents still achieve their personal goals. Friendly reminder, this show is intended for people with kids, not for kids. For this episode, I had the phenomenal opportunity to interview Jill Newman, author of Raising Lions, which is an amazing book for just parenting advice and how to deal with kids, because nowadays kids are so full of energy and they're so demanding and we as parents are not stepping up and meeting those needs. And so it's a very interesting book. It moves me and affects the way I parent now. Um, And so I'm definitely super excited and glad to have this opportunity to meet and talk with Joe. So definitely enjoyed the conversation and hope you will as well. All right. So thanks, Joe, for joining into the show. It's definitely an absolute pleasure. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. And so for a brief introduction to the listeners, this is Joe Newman, the author of Raising Lions. And I first heard about Raising Lions through my coworker and who was saying like, look, you have to get this guy on the show. His book is amazing. And I read it and my friend did not lie to me. So that's definitely, (laughs) (laughs) and I mean, it's definitely true. And the one thing I'm looking forward to learn from you is how to be a successful parent while raising a lion. Yeah. Um, And because the opening paragraph is we are raising lions, but we are acting like lambs. And when I tell you that, like just caught my attention entirely, I was hooked for for the rest of the book. Excellent. Good. Well, it was funny because I was looking for a title for the book. Um, I had a book agent and I had a a working title that was horrible. And uh, (laughs) I'll tell you what it is. And, uh, And she's like, you need a title. You need a title. And I was walking around this school one day with a behaviorist and this kid that I loved, who was, you know, five, six, he was just, but he was, he running everybody ragged. And I looked around the school and I thought, they're all lions. They're all like little lions. And I thought, and we're acting like lambs. Oh, that's it. We're raising yeah. lions. <laughs> and so I had the title wow. right there. So that's fantastic. So, yeah, before we dive into the depth of raising lions and, and how, to live as a successful parent. I wanted to touch on a little bit of your personal bio. I've read on your website that you are a surfer. Yeah. And you've been around a place or two, correct? Yeah, I traveled. You know, I've always loved surfing. Um, I started dreaming about it in Maryland when I was 14. And um, I would wake up in the morning like, must go surfing. And (laughs) three hours from the beach, not a very nice beach. So I surfed a lot. Um, I just started going surfing and uh, surfed a lot in the Caribbean, a lot in Central America, a little bit of uh, Hawaii, Fiji. Nice. Yeah. And so of all those locations, what's probably your favorite? And that could be surf-wise or just as visiting location well you know the big package uh surf spot or surf trip i had best surf trip was probably guadalupe in the caribbean which Mm. is not a well-known destination but i had gone to panama about six months before and it was supposed to be like this exclusive sort of 
you know, or high-end trip for me. And it turned out like the cook quit, the internet went out, the power, we lost power on day three. And we all, all the surfers had to take over the hotel. And I became the cook and my friend uh, and his French friends became, I would cook breakfast, they would cook dinner, or we made lanterns. And at the end of it, I was great friends with a guy named Felix, who was from Guadeloupe. He's French. And so I went there for 17 days and stayed in his guest house, like a little, just a very, very simple house with an outdoor stove and really a great trip. It was, I say, the best diet in the world is the Guadeloupe diet because you eat all the French food you possibly can, surf for four hours a day and still lose weight. <laughs> great, great that trip. sounds like a plan. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. So it's interesting hearing your traveling stories and your surfing stories and just getting jealous thinking of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then thinking you've switched and gone on a journey to where you've ended up counseling with children. How did you end up making that transition? Yeah. So, you know, in my late 20s, I'd done about 30 more than 30 jobs already in my life. But, you know, wow. 10 years after college. I remember, you know, that because we had to write down how many jobs we had at our 10 year high school reunion. But I was really looking for something meaningful. You know, I was, I was partying too much. I was running around and I sort of scared myself and thought I need something that's meaningful to me. And Mm -hmm. uh, after about five days of sort of intense meditation and reflection, I, um, I realized that I'd kind of worked a chip off my shoulder that I'd left school with based on how I was parented and taught. And, that there must be millions and millions, literally, of children having a similar experience. And I thought, I, and it was like I could hear them in that moment, like saying, Hey, where are you, man? You just left mm-hmm. us here. And uh, I walked into a school and just started volunteering without a degree. Six months later, I was the crisis intervention specialist at a summer camp for the most difficult children in the country. They'd we called them the, the all-stars because they were thrown out of every other camp and school in the country. <laughs> and I loved it there. It was I did it for s- summers for six years. And then and things unfolded from me working individually with children, people wanting to know what I was doing to get these kind of results, and then developing a method. The book actually opened up the counseling part of it. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so how did you kind of... And for the listeners that aren't familiar with it, could you give like a brief 30-second intro into your method? Yeah. So essentially, I help people to combine two things, which is you set up a structure and you deal with conflict head on, but you do that while simultaneously giving respect and autonomy to the child. And those things are usually don't happen in the same moment. Usually... We avoid the boundary while we're acting, quote, unquote, compassionately. And then we deal with the, the, the boundary, but it's filled with moralizing and judgment and emotions and punitive, unpredictable things going on. And there's no reason those things should be paired. Matter of fact, it's a worse pairing. So I just teach people how to set up boundaries, get your needs met, assert those things in a way without manipulation and with lots of respect. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so 
I'm super impressed of the fact that you've gone from someone who's done this passionately as a volunteer stepping into this into now being a leader in this space. Um, and so I'm interested of on that journey going from this inkling of a thought to you're now writing books and being called to help others. And was it UCLA that had a study on your method? UCSB, Santa Barbara. UCSB. Okay. And so UCSB had a study done applying your method and recognizing that there was a 50% increase in behaviors of the children. So like of that journey going from volunteer to leader, what's probably like the one thing that you've learned and are just like always moved by as you think about it? You know, I think you have to do what you love, have to respect what's authentic and meaningful to you first and foremost. There was a point in my work when there was a lot of strong encouragement that, Joe, you need to get a college degree. You know, you're really good at this, but you need a bachelor's and maybe a master's. And and the pressure was that I should get those degrees in education and psychology. Mm-hmm. But I felt a huge resistance to that. Not the degree, but those fields because they were looking at the kids that I worked with through a lens of pathologizing them. Gotcha. And I just couldn't do it. And I just held to that. And I thought, I, I can't spend four or six years studying how to recognize how children are broken. It's not my paradigm. And so I studied organizational management because it looked at group thinking and motivation and leadership and interactions between people from a standpoint of, you know, sort of the business community where you can't, you can't diagnose and medicate people. You, you know, your employees aren't motivated. You can't go, well, that one, you know, that one needs a little of, you know, this particular drug. That'll get them up in the morning. It's, it's off the table. So you have to look at all the, the human factors that are causing these qualities to develop or not develop. And I, I thought, well, that's something I can do authentically. And wow. that was a great decision. That's fantastic. Like I would have never thought of looking into organizational management when thinking about how to work with kids. That's a fantastic idea of recognizing and treating people. Uh, kids as just individuals. Yeah. To be fair, I, I didn't think about it. For, <laughs> I didn't have some volunteer plan. I just, I, I looked at, I need to get a master's and I thought, well, that looks really interesting and I could see that being helpful and I could do that authentically. So. Wow. And so what's some of your influences into authenticity and being genuine? Where does that kind of come from? Well, I think there's twofold. One is that I've been a lifelong reader of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm. I think the essay Self-Reliance, you know, is the single greatest piece of, uh, I don't know if you call it literature or essay. I've read Self-Reliance 300 times, start to finish. And his other essays, uh, Compensation and Spiritual Laws, they teach you a fundamental fact that is so hard to hold on to in today's society, which is that you have a voice that's, that sees something of the world that's uniquely yours, and it's your responsibility to speak it. And it 
it helps you look at all those things that would sabotage that voice and keep you from speaking and and how to make that strong and think for yourself. So I think that and you know I, I also I have a Buddhist practice I've done for 35 years which um, nurtures that on a, a very visceral level. Wow, nice. But yeah, no, so the reason I ask it is, um, well, one, for the Ralph Waldo Emerson, I have two quotes <laughs> on my wall that are from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. One is, unless you try to do something beyond what you have already mastered, you will never grow. Yeah. And the other is always do what you are afraid to do. And so those are definitely things that are that resonate with me as I try to like push myself and remind myself that life is lived outside of the comfort zone. And, and for yeah. the audience, you didn't know I was going to talk about Emerson until a second ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that just happens to work out nicely that we're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. And the other reason I was asking about authenticity and being genuine is – when I was reading your book, a, a lot of what you were saying resonated with me from what I've read from Brene Brown. Are you familiar with Brene Brown? Yeah, I love her. I think she- okay. Yeah, so I was trying to see if there was any influence there or, or anything. Well, I, I think that. I was late to the Brene Brown party, to be honest. So I've only learned about her in the last couple of years. So it wasn't, okay. it's what, not one of my seminal influences, but I feel like she's a very much a kindred spirit and uh, always super encouraging. Yeah, definitely. I guess kind of switching gears here, but as you've worked with tons of children, that means you've also worked with tons of parents. Yeah. <laughs> and so one thing that I feel like I see often in parents today is we're kind of trying our best to keep the threads of our sanity together as we are raising our own lions. What is the most common advice you give to parents in order to help them keep their sanity while they are raising their own lions? Yes. I was was thinking about this question and I think there's a broad sort of conceptual answer and then there's very specific answers, which is what I do every day. Because the work that I do I'm not like your typical counselor in that um, mm-hmm. most parents who see me don't see me for more than 10 hours. End of story. Mm. I mean, the vast, I would say the average client that I have sees me for six hours and they're done. I keep it as a goal to give people very practical steps to move through to change their thinking and relationship in a radical way. But I think that happens through specific actions that people can take language they can use so that they can experience the results of that and step into a new dynamic. And then it, the experience of that feeds itself. So on that practical level, I would say the advice that I give parents is, you know, you, you really need to make a little bit of a plan for what you're going to do and how you're going to deal with conflict because there's so much information out, of, out there and, and a lot of it is not helpful. that you're just going to work way, 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 way too hard (laughs) all the time trying to juggle, you know, 25 different things in every moment about what you're supposed to be doing with your kid instead of having an authentic experience and knowing how to move through difficulty with sort of confidence in a relaxed way. A plan is helpful, like figuring it, like, so I teach parents, like, 
very specific plans, proactive plans, that means looking at sort of the week and your expectations for your kids and mm -hmm. what you need from them. Like, put down, what, what, what do I need from my kids? Well, you know, and what do they need from me? Because there's some transaction that has to happen. When I get this, you get this. And let's look at it. It makes things much easier when that's planned out. And then a reactive tool, which is, for me, I use a break protocol, which is for most children, particularly, you know, under the age of 10, you know, they should learn how to stop themselves and sit quietly for a minute. And putting that into play takes a plan. It doesn't happen instantly. You have to know what you're doing and move through it for, typically within a week or two, you're, things are moving. And so the effort you put into making a plan, you know, if you had to put in whatever, let's say 10 hours to put a plan into place, that's going to save you a thousand hours in the next year yeah. of working too damn hard. <laughs> and pulling out hairs. <laughs> yeah. So that's the practical aspects of it to the extent you'd like. I'm, I'm happy to go into the details of that. I th but on a, on a broader basis, I'd like to just, to tell, I'll tell you as a, a means of addressing that, the study they did at University of California, Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they did is they went in and measured how often students were off task and doing something they shouldn't be doing, whether that was disruptive or just spacing out or all these other varieties of problem behavior. And they measured that every 90 seconds in classrooms. They did 1,800 observations. And wow. Then, and they measured how teachers responded to behavior. Did they talk about behavior? Did they lecture about behavior? Did they threaten a consequence? Did they give a consequence? Was the consequence immediate? Was there an emotional charge to what they did? Was it positive? Was it negative? Was it neutral? Et cetera. And then they, they got a, after they had a baseline, I taught them a very simple process in a nutshell was stop talking about behavior. Yep. Stop talking about it. They know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it pisses you off to have to do it and it pisses them off to have to hear it. So why are we yep. doing it? <laughs> it's like nobody's happy. Um, yep. And it's the, what is it? Charlie Brown teacher. <laughs> yeah. At the end, you know, uh, except for some kids, you know, that wah, 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 you know, they want to hear a whole symphony of wah, 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 and they're orchestrating, you know, let's get louder. Wah, 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 you know, it's just, but that's, you're right. <laughs> so instead of doing, instead of responding by identifying a behavior, you know, instead of Sean, there's no throwing paper in the class. It'd be, Sean, I need you to take a minute at the focus desk. Yeah. And then there was a simple cause and effect thing that happened where they wouldn't talk about behavior until, unless a kid wanted to, when the next free period was up or at the end of the class. So they left this big space blank they used to fill in. They stopped working so hard. And when they got out of that space, children stepped into it. And they regulated themselves. It wasn't so much that they had an active classroom management process as they just created a condition for children to manage themselves so that they could teach. Mm -hmm. And you had a 50% drop in all off-task behavior school-wide. So wow. in that respect, our anxiety as parents 
you know, and there's plenty to feed that anxiety, our worry, our taught, our, the, how much we've been taught to look for what's wrong with our children, how much we've been taught that we should feel guilty if we're not working, if, you know, super hard to fill in all their thought blanks that we, we should be afraid they might not fill in for themselves. All that mm -hmm. work communicates a lack of faith and anxiety, and it gets a bad result. So, so much of what I think parents ultimately need to do is less. Yeah. But with faith. I absolutely agree. So. It, yeah. yeah. I think that's like so eloquently put. And I mean, it just resonates with me. I'm, I'm, I'm like the guy in the back <laughs> dancing and shouting like, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. That's what I've been saying. That's what I believe in. So I want to go back to one of the points you mentioned with the planning and also not just planning and doing it alone, but planning together or, or thinking and considering your child. What age, and I know there's no one size fits all, but what's the most common age you can see starting with? Because I have a four-year-old and I'm like, I don't know if she gets planning, but I don't know if I'm underestimating her ability. Four is plenty of time to start, but it's not about her making the plan. Mm -hmm. It's about you making the plan. Gotcha. She'll adapt to you. And it's like initially I, when I wrote up these, you know, sort of scripted protocols for parents to follow so they could get on the same page, I was thinking, and in the book even, I, commun I, I was reading over what I wrote and I, I was thinking that this was mostly for the kids. It's actually mostly for the adults. Yeah. When the adults have a structure, adults calm down. When adults know what they're going to do next, they can communicate that with compassion and faith. When they're guessing and having to come up with something and get their kid out the door because they're going to be late to work and they don't have a plan, they're going to lose their <laughs> – that's just how it works. <laughs> that's the natural response. Yeah. So yep. by a plan for like a four-year-old, I have clients that have come to me with two-year-olds. I've had hmm. I had a, a mom with twins who were – I think just shy of two who were just running her ragged. And she was like, can I figure out how to give them breaks so that they'll stop and sit and control themselves? And I said, well, let's see. And we worked together. And by the end of the day, they were taking 10 second breaks, stopping wow. themselves. Now she had to move through a process. So the plan for her, we worked and we had to work this out sort of trial and error with seeing what the kids were able to do. But she did a process of asking them to stop and come to mom. And if they didn't come in 10 seconds, then she brought them inside. And then inside they had to sit for a minute before they went back outside. And then if they wouldn't sit and they were running around, she put them in their crib. And wow. so three steps, right? Come to yeah. mommy and then we don't have to go inside. This is the first day. If if you don't come to mommy and I, I finish counting and they were learning that count pretty quickly, I bring you inside. If you don't sit down when I bring you inside to, and sit quietly with mommy, then I'm going to put you in your crib. And in the crib, she would say, if you're quiet, I'll stand with you and we'll, we'll be quiet together. Hold your hand. If not, I'm going to step out of the room. And she would step out of the room, just out of eyesight. Yep. And she repeated this. That alone took like half an hour before they got it. it. But as soon as they saw that when they were quiet, she stepped back into their eyesight. When they screamed, she stepped just out of it. They realized, oh, I got to be quiet. They, so by the end of the day, they were coming to her when she needed them to stop something, looking at her, 
counting to 10 together. She'd say, oh, you ready? Yes. They'd go back to play. And that simple intervention made all the change in the world. Wow. Wow. And I, I can't even, I, I think the, the, I love the structure and the, the removing of stimulation and matching the behavior with the right consequences. But I mean, I, I'm just like in awe of trying to apply that with twins. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a necessity in her case. <laughs> you know. So she's she's actually my niece and she'd come out here. I think she came out like some months later with her girlfriend for a little vacation. And they were here then when they sat down at the table, her and her, her girlfriend were they both had toddlers and um and they sat down at the table and I made them a nice meal. And they were their husbands had the kids for the, for like uh, five days. First time either one of them had been <laughs> their children for, since they were born. And halfway through the meal, I looked over and she had tears running down her face. Oh. And she just said, this is the first meal I've had in two years that wasn't interrupted. What wasn't interrupted? Yep. And I was like, yeah, we, you know, we, we really pampered them for the next week. It's super, awesome. super hard. Yes. Uh, people need tools, you know? Yeah. And, and I think as you were mentioning, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, the way that society today kind of pushes this idea that if you're a parent, you have to be a martyr. That's right. Yeah. And so I just love to like, like it's not hard enough to start with. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, and I think that's one of the things that kind of spurred me to start the podcast was I feel like a lot of the things in our day and age try, tries to say, like, if you don't sacrifice your life every day for your child, then you're a bad parent. And it's, it's kind of like, Actually, if you sacrifice your life for your child, who's going to provide for your child the next day? And so it's like, how do we find this healthy balance? Right. And, you know, on a, on a very deep psychological level of what I realized, which spurred me in some part to write the book in the first place was if you sacrifice yourself for your child, you disappear and your child feels abandoned. Mm -hmm. When we give up all our needs when we don't to satisfy all our child's needs and we take on all frustration so that they don't have to take on frustration, we rob them first of the ability to grow up into adults. But we also yeah. disappear as people. And our children experience that disappearance, which we think of as some sort of unconditional love, as abandonment. Because you're no longer like them. And that creates anxiety. Yeah. So the good news is it's in everybody's benefit to set boundaries and have your needs met as parents. It's good for you and it's good for your children. It's essential for them. Yeah. Yeah. So fantastic words. And so I know we've talked a lot about being a counselor, but you are also a father yourself. And so I'm interested in, in hearing how once you became a parent or, or however that came first, which, ah, let me rephrase it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I could fill in the blanks. It might help you. It's a little different scenario for me. Just first, you know, my when I first became a parent, it was of a thirteen-year-old. I moved in with my wife, who had a daughter. She was a single mother, and you know, had been separated from her husband for ten years, and you know, so I started with a thirteen-year-old. At the easy stage, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wasn't happy about me being there. I mean, she was, you know, I mean, her friends kind of told, said, look, you know, Joan, you're, you're going to watch your mom to be a little more busy than, than, than she is in the next five years. You don't want her all in your business. And she, but she wasn't, she was having none of it. Yep. And so, you know, it took six months to a year before we turned a corner on that and our relationship started to really open up and, and blossom. So awesome. Anyway, that's and so okay, perfect. And so with that, how did becoming a parent affect the way that you teach and counsel? Number one, it, it gave me a lot more compassion for parents. Okay, I think up until that point, I was always in the head of the child because mm-hmm. a lot of my method really is just me just channeling my eight-year-old. You know, when you hire me to. To do some consulting, you might not realize you hired an eight-year-old, but you, you kind of did. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's the, you know, the adult that learns how to articulate this in a way that, you know, you can understand and put into practice. But it's the eight-year-old who's pulling the strings in the background. So I've always wow. had this very deep empathy with that, particularly the problem child. He kind of still lives mm-hmm. in me all the time. But when I, as a father you see what people have to go through and you live yeah. it and you realize, you know, you just took on a full-time job that you will never leave. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you will always have two jobs or more for the rest of your life until you retire and then you'll still have the one. <laughs> yep. I mean that, and I think that's, you know, that's been super important and, and it, it came at just the right time because, you know, for a long time my work was, really just directly with kids and in in schools and in programs. And then when the book came out, the nature of my work shifted to be entirely, almost entirely with adults because I I really hold the, the belief I can work with your child and they will change their behavior with me. Yeah. But that's not the point. You know, I <laughs> you know what happens when I leave? Exactly. I want parents to have the tools to do this 24-7 that makes more profound change. That's the help they need. The quicker I can get in and out of there and let you get about your parenting, the better. Awesome. And so I know that we are getting close on time and I want to be respectful of that. So I have one question I always love asking and it's always, uh, I guess, a thoughtful piece of if you could go back to yourself the day before you became a parent, what advice would you give your younger self? Don't take it personally. Mm. Your kids are going to press your buttons. They were like karmically designed to press <laughs> your buttons. They don't even have to think about it. <laughs> I mean, that's just, just how every that's how it always works out. Even if you think you oh you got really lucky and you got a good one, nobody gets off that easy. <laughs> nobody gets off that easy. You, they're going to press your buttons. They're going to make you look at something that no other experience in your life will ever look at. Don't take it personally. Yeah. It's healthy for them to do that. 
you know, and, yeah. uh, and in the end, you'll thank them. But you won't yeah. thank them when it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that moment, it's not, it's not fun. That's right, yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Well, I mean, I, I think that's all of the questions I have. This has been fantastic. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? I've got lots of things available for people to help develop their parenting, to put the practices in the book in place. You know, Raising Lions, which is available on Amazon, you know, is um, came out nine years ago. It's still valid. You see, I love it. I love it. For, forever valid, I probably. That. I'm working on book two, and that should be done this year. Um, but there's a there's other resources parents can get. I mean, if they come to RaisingLions.com, they can subscribe to the newsletter. They can find out about webinars that I put on. People can tune in from around the world. I do individual consulting with parents who want that work done, and it's done in person in LA or on Skype anywhere in the world. There's a YouTube channel, which is filled with videos that of me doing the method. And actually, it, there aren't any children in the videos. It's all adults acting the parts of their own children. So the adults you see in that video, they're doing their children. <laughs> so it turned out hysterical. I love it. I mean, some of them are just me talking, and there's a couple reenactments, but for the most part, it's like you want to see the method in practice in some simple ways. You can go to Raising Lions YouTube channel. Yeah, that's it. I, I've got an audio book. I'm I'm just going to wrap up. Actually, later today is the last recording session. So, um, depending on editing, that should be out within a few weeks. Yeah, that's it. RaisingLions.com. You can get a hold of me and get whatever you need or find the book on Amazon. Awesome, Joe. I'm definitely excited to see what this next book will bring. I'm super excited for that yeah. one. <laughs> you got a little insight today. That's all. Yeah. Thoughts. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much, Joe. This has been fantastic. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Well, it's a pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. You know, there's a, as I told you in the beginning, it's like you, you communicated in more enthusiasm in one first email than I read in a while and i thought i just gotta talk to this guy it's uh God sounds like fun and i wasn't wrong so thank you i'm glad to hear I appreciate that it. hope you enjoyed this episode of successful while parenting till we figure out cloning we'll be investigating the tips tricks and routines that help other parents still achieve their personal goals this podcast is available in itunes stitcher and google music it's also available on soundcloud if you'd like if you could, pretty, pretty please, with sugar on top, please leave a review. I definitely hope that this podcast is worthy of five stars. But if not, then let me know what I can do to take it to the next level. Your constructive feedback is requested and definitely highly valued. I want to be able to provide a good source of value for you. I promise. So please, leave us a review and... Check us out on our Facebook page. You can easily search for us, uh, Successful While Parenting, or you can go directly to our URL, which is facebook.com slash SWPpod. Once on the Facebook page, drop me a line. I love having conversations with listeners and being able to know what's working well, what's not. So thanks. See you soon. 
This track is called Least Looks Green by Swirl. You can find it on his SoundCloud, which is linked on the Facebook page. 